This is the gift that he decided to give the American people. What the hell is going on? Wrong. Wrong. Drugs. Wrong. Healthcare. Wrong. A wall. Wrong. Republicans. Wrong. Democrats. Wrong. Wrong. They're not Wrong. sending their best. Wrong. Best. 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 Broadcasting from an undisclosed location. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 24 of your not always weekly, weekly breakdown of political news and current events from the perspective of liberty and logic, pre-quarantine edition. Before we get to the looming effects of what is either an overblown case of the flu or the first few chapters of Stephen King's The Stand, let's talk about some election stuff. As if Super Tuesday wasn't brutal enough, the March 10th primaries were just as disheartening for Bernie supporters. We talked last week about how desperately important a big Michigan win was going to be for the Sanders campaign, but only slightly less important was a very competitive showing across the board. Bernie's best case scenario, not including Michigan, was winning Washington, Idaho, North Dakota, and Missouri. Mississippi, he could just write off as a loss but still getting some delegates out of it would probably be nice. All of that should theoretically be possible. In 2016, Sanders won Michigan, Idaho, North Dakota, and Washington. He did lose Missouri by the slightest of margins. Clinton won by less than half of a percentage point. So you would think that the lean, mean 2020 version of the campaign would make even more headway. I knew after last week that Bernie was done but I couldn't be sure how long he could limp it out. Could he score enough support this week to keep him alive? Apparently the answer is hell no. The day before the primary this week, I was talking to Democratic strategist and frequent guest of the show, Basil Summers. And as a Bernie supporter, he was still hanging on to the dream of a Sanders resurrection. But he did at least say that if Bernie lost Michigan by more than five points, you could call it done. Sanders lost by 17. He didn't win a single county. That's the kind of thing you would expect to hear in a place like Mississippi, where in 2016, he lost 82 to 17, not Michigan. And for the record, his performance in Mississippi this year was pretty close to what it was last time. Okay, so what he thought was going to be a warm reception with the classic American worker turned out to be an old-fashioned blanket party in a back alley. But let's take a look at the states that he did win. In North Dakota, which took its sweet-ass time getting results in, Sanders beat Biden by 13 points, and he took home eight of the 14 available delegates. And then, oh, it looks like that's it. Bernie Sanders took one state. Now, to be fair, Washington state takes a long time to process all their votes, many of which are done by mail. So they have only reported about 77% so far. But Biden is ahead by about a point and a half. And that's another state that Bernie kind of thought he would crush it in. Idaho, which seemed to be another very hopeful target for the Sanders campaign, went for Biden by about six and a half points. Missouri was considered strongly Sanders territory before Super Tuesday, but it too fell victim to the Biden surge. And it was actually worse than Michigan. Biden won Missouri by 25 points. All in all, the day was just a complete letdown for Bernie supporters. 
And again, this was his best chance. Next week is Illinois, Florida, Arizona, and Ohio. Those are all steep Biden states. And the week after that is Georgia. If Sanders had ended this week literally tied with Biden, it probably wouldn't be enough. And as it happens, Sanders is down about 156 delegates. The only real question now is how is Bernie going to play it? I mean, he can't win. The numbers just aren't there. Even if, and I mean huge if, he dominated the debate on Sunday and Biden just drooled on himself and shit his pants, he couldn't do much to catch up in the next few weeks. Theoretically, he can keep picking up delegates until the convention, but let's just be honest with ourselves. If you thought the DNC was going to screw him out of a nomination he earned, why would you ever think, even for the slightest of moments, that they would voluntarily pick him over literally anyone else? What case do you think he can make that he hasn't made since 2016? It doesn't matter how many delegates he has. The convention is not Bernie's friend. Plus, as many have already pointed out, if you really want to play to win, you have to start attacking Biden. Not in that weird, passive way that Bernie does, where he's just like, somebody on this stage voted for the Iraq War. You gotta go after him. And I mean, really call him out on his bullshit. But not only is that still not going to get you the numbers that you need, but then the media and the establishment that already don't like you are going to shit on you even more for being divisive after the nominee is fucking obvious. What good is that going to do you? Or the last option, he could just get out, which we all know he's not going to do. It's not his style. But it also seems that if you stay in a contest that you know you can't win and just keep flushing other people's money down the toilet, well... That, I guess, does kind of seem like his style. It is very possible that his plan is to utilize this next debate. I mean, it's the first one-on-one -on -one debate, and due to the coronavirus, there will be no audience and fewer distractions. It's possible his hope is to make his case against Biden one last good time and then see how that plays out. So maybe after the next big primary day, if his polls haven't moved, he'll make the sensible call and just drop out. I mean, I guess we'll just have to wait and see how it plays out. Because it's also possible that if he loses big next week, he'll just point out that he didn't really have much of a chance in those states anyway, and then he'll hold out for, I don't know, God knows what. I don't even know what's coming up that he's looking that good in. I mean, New York doesn't vote until the end of April, and he's not looking great there either. Okay, major tone shift to our next story. It's pretty common knowledge at this point that sexual abuse, especially involving children, is pretty rampant in Hollywood and the social circles connected to it. Most of the time, it's not until someone is fully outed that people start to realize all the clues that they've overlooked. The jokes and the stories you heard all make a little more sense at that point. And you wonder how you never caught on. And then you remember that that one person that had been saying it for years and that no one ever listened and everybody just thought they were crazy. Because, I mean, how do you know? How can you tell who has a real story and who is just, well, full of shit? And I don't have a clear answer for that. I mean, I think you should always listen. Every accusation should be heard and looked into, but sometimes without some sort of evidence to go on, the truth is pretty hard to pin down. And as much as we know that these things happen, we also know that there's people out there who would capitalize on horrific stories. 
Corey Feldman has been talking about pedophilia in Hollywood for years now. In several interviews, Feldman has recounted his surreal and fucked up childhood from his ex-playboy model mother beating him with a stick and fat shaming him to his earliest experiences with drugs. And he also talks about being molested by a man named John Grissom, who his manager dad hired to be his assistant. Grissom also had a very small roles in two Corey Feldman movies, License to Drive and Dream a Little Dream. He served time in 2003 for performing lewd acts on a minor, apparently in the 14 to 15 age range, according to the internet. In addition to Grissom, Feldman named Marty Weiss. He was a former talent agent whose clients have worked on multiple projects on Disney and Nickelodeon. And while Weiss did not respond to those allegations, he did plead no contest in 2012 to charges that he had molested a former client, apparently 30 to 40 times over a three-year period, when the kid was around 11 or 12 years old. And slight sidetrack, mentioning a pedophile talent agent with ties to several hit Nickelodeon shows. To emphasize how widespread these kinds of things are, go Google Dan Schneider. The man was a producer powerhouse at Nick, and he's responsible for some of the biggest hits they've had in the last 20 years. From All That, to The Amanda Show, to Drake and Josh, to iCarly, the list goes on. Rumors of him being a weird pedo creep had been going on for years too. Not limited to him tweeting pics of young girls' feet, which is also very strange. Then, around 2018, Nickelodeon suddenly decided to cut ties with him. Not for any real reason, of course. They just randomly thought the guy that gave them a mountain of hits shouldn't work there anymore. Totally not suspicious at all. But back to Corey Feldman. There are also stories of a place called Alfie's Soda Pop Club that threw these exclusive parties for child stars throughout the 80s. Described as a lot of kids with very few adults, it became the source of a lot of rumors and speculation. It was run by a guy named Alfie Hoffman, whose dad was a big-time casting director in the 70s and 80s. Alfie was the third person that Feldman named as a predator from his past. In a 2004 interview, the other Corey, Corey Haim, said, quote, I don't think he's a good human being. I lost complete respect for Alfie Hoffman. Alfie sucks. Point fucking blank. Now that quote, among some others, led people to believe that Haim may have had his own bad experience with Hoffman. Haim and Feldman were both regulars at Alfie's parties, and Haim had also been the victim of sexual assault as a child star. The most well-known story is that Haim was raped while filming the 1986 movie Lucas. That story has been going on for a while, and while Haim never publicly named anyone, Sometime later, it was alleged that it was in fact Haim's Lucas co-star Charlie Sheen, though he fervently denies it, obviously. Feldman claims to know of other sexual predators and has been hesitant to name more people out of fear of being sued or worse. He's dropped hints, he's made vague allusions over the years, to the point that most people don't really buy it anymore. I mean, he's named a few people, obviously, and no one with any sense believes that this kind of thing isn't happening. But Feldman's claim to have some sort of bombshell behind his back does get harder and harder to believe. Over the past few years, he's claimed that not only is he ready to name big names, but that he's putting it into a documentary for wide distribution. I mean, if only he could raise some money. Initially, he tried to raise $10 million on Indiegogo, and then he dropped it to $1 million. And then apparently a number of legal issues caused him to spend the couple hundred thousand he'd already raised. So he supposedly self-funded the film, eventually. The documentary, years in the making, 
called My Truth, The Rape of Two Corys, was finally making its debut this past Monday. Feldman hosted a live screening in L.A. with various friends and celebrities and media, and the plan was that people could purchase tickets of sorts to watch the live stream for 20 bucks. But when the time came, people were met with error messages and blank screens. These problems were blamed on everything from error on the part of the streaming service to hackers that were trying to prevent the truth from coming out. Proof, Feldman would allege, of just how much they don't want you to see this movie. The live screening was held up for a while to try to fix the stream. Feldman insisted that everyone needed to see it at the same time. But eventually the stream was abandoned, and Feldman promised to find other ways to get the movie out or to get everybody's money back. And one outcome of this was the resurgence of accusations that Feldman is only peddling this for attention and the money. Another unforeseen effect was that with all the attention but none of the streaming, there was no way for the average social media user to verify these sudden sporadic claims that certain celebrities had been named in the documentary. Rumors were rampant, and being as no one cares to confirm what they read on Twitter, even when they can, they spread quickly and confidently. I don't want to go into the list. I mean, A, because if it's not true, it doesn't matter. And B, because until the movie comes out, it's all baseless. But... There were definitely names you would know, but again, there was no one confirming it. You would think with some of these names, somebody who was at the screening would have backed it up quick. So only time will tell what, if any, new information comes out of all this. What we do know is that regardless of what Corey Feldman knows or can prove, sexual assault on children is a very widespread issue. And luckily, Feldman isn't the only one trying to get this word out. In 2011, entertainment lawyer Matthew Valentinus, I guess, heard Feldman discussing his abuses and decided that he wanted to do something. Valentinus and his friend Gabe Hoffman approached Oscar-nominated documentarian Amy Berg about making a movie on the abuse in Hollywood. Berg had previously made a movie called Deliver Us From Evil, which was about the abuse in the Catholic Church, so it seemed like a good fit. The documentary focuses largely on a company called Digital Entertainment Network. It was started back in 96 when Hollywood was still trying to figure out how to use the internet, basically. The company was founded by tech entrepreneur Mark Rector, his much younger boyfriend Chad Shackley, and a former child star named Brock Pierce, who was in The Mighty Ducks, by the way. When the company wasn't making short-form shows for the young web, they were throwing these crazy parties at their Encino mansion. There were drugs, alcohol, and lots of underaged boys. Allegations listed in civil suits filed around that time suggested at least a half a dozen boys were sexually assaulted at these parties. Guests at these parties included former Disney TV executive David Newman and X-Men director Brian Singer, both of which were named in those suits. Eventually, Rector, Shackley, and Pierce would flee the country only to be arrested by Interpol a couple years later. Mark Rector pleaded guilty in 2004 to multiple counts of child sexual abuse while Shackley and Pierce were not charged at all, for whatever reason. Brian Singer, who obviously denies all the charges, has faced several similar accusations for years. Just last year, The Atlantic ran an article about new allegations dating back as far as 2003. Interestingly, there is a guy named Brian Peck, who appears in the first two X-Men movies in very small roles. He used to be a dialogue coach at Nickelodeon with Dan Schneider, until he went to jail for molesting a kid. Now, is there a connection between Schneider, Singer, and Peck? 
Probably not. I mean, not directly anyway. My point is just that these fuckers are everywhere. And since Peck got out of jail, he went right back to working on kids' shows. We kind of got off track again. This is a bizarre rabbit hole, and the more I read about it, the more connections I find. Some very disturbing, and some, I mean, probably coincidental. For example, former child star Brock Pierce turns tech entrepreneur, co-founds a company that has underage sex parties with Hollywood pedophiles. He's not directly implicated, but he becomes a big name in cryptocurrency and later gets invited to a conference for scientists in the Virgin Islands hosted by Jeffrey Epstein. It's a weird world. The documentary, An Open Secret, never really found distribution because, I mean, no one has the balls to take on that kind of attention. But you can find it online, and I recommend checking it out. And if Corey Feldman ever gets his movie out, I suggest we all check that out too. Moving on. So, here's the thing. I had no real intention of covering the coronavirus. Mostly because everyone else is covering it. I mean, you can't turn on any news without being bombarded with media panic over it. You can debate the severity of the disease itself. And you can be that guy that only has the one stat to throw out. Do you have any idea how many people I talk to on a daily basis that want to tell you how many people the flu kills each year? I get it. It's clear you picked up one talking point, and now you just screech it out at every opportunity like a parrot with Tourette's. And to be clear, it doesn't mean they're wrong. The flu kills a surprising number of people, and this virus isn't racking up those numbers yet. But in those years that a really bad version of the flu is going around, everybody talks about that too. No one brings up some other disease that kills more people. Let's put it another way. The actual mortality rate is a little sketchy. It's been guesstimated to be about 9 out of every 1,000 people that get the coronavirus will die. According to the BBC, it's more like 2 out of 1,000. But let's presume it's even lower. Imagine that you, a reasonably healthy individual, only has a 1 in 1,000 chance of dying. That's not that bad. And the totals would come out way lower than the flu unless it keeps spreading. It's estimated that more than 5 million people eat at Taco Bell every day. If 5,000 of them kept dying, would you keep going there? Or would you just tell everyone how many more people die at McDonald's? The virus doesn't have to be that bad in and of itself to be a problem. The more it spreads, the more issues it causes. Some real, some precautionary, or even panic-based. But the spread is the thing. So now... Everything is grinding to a halt. Lots of concerts and tours are canceling. Billie Eilish, Tool, Post Malone have all canceled big tours. About two dozen other names have either stopped altogether or are canceling shows in certain countries. The Metropolitan Opera in New York is on hold. Everything at Carnegie Hall and Lincoln Center is out. South by Southwest is canceled. E3 is canceled. That's not even until June. Loads of film festivals have been canceled. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony was pushed back. A whole laundry list of movie premieres were canceled and shoots have been put on hold. Awards shows like Nickelodeon's Kids' Choice Awards is being pushed back. The TED conference in Vancouver may be done totally virtually this year. New York City, Chicago, Boston, Denver, San Francisco, and even Dublin have canceled their St. Patrick's Day parades out of coronaphobia. I honestly don't know how big the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin is. I mean, I imagine it would be pretty big, but that may just be a stereotypical kind of connection. But Boston? 
the fact that Boston canceled St. Patrick's Day parade over anything kind of amazes me. The NBA and the NHL have both suspended their seasons until further notice. Major League Baseball canceled spring training the other day. The NCAA, March Madness, originally talked about playing the tournament sans audience, which sounds completely ridiculous in itself, followed the NBA's lead and just canceled it altogether. And these are things that, I mean, that's huge anyway, that they canceled events of that size. But think of the economies in these places. South by Southwest is huge. What kind of impact do you think that's going to have on Austin to not have that money come in? What about all these cities that host the NCAA tournaments? The list of schools and colleges and universities that either canceled classes or moved to strictly online attendance is growing faster than I can keep up with it. Disneyland and Disney World have both closed. Even the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints has canceled all public gatherings around the world. That's the first religious organization to do that. The Dow has dropped about 20% as uncertainty builds, and that's most likely going to continue. Because no matter how bad the virus turns out to be, until there is a clear plan of action and a defined end in sight, the market will continue to suffer. People are already going out less. Workers that depend on public attendance are seeing the effects. Fewer people in restaurants means less money for servers and bartenders. Fewer people shopping means trouble for small businesses that already operate on slim margins. People are going to suffer because of this, whether it's through actual sickness or only the economic hardship. So you can sit around and argue about how bad the virus isn't, but it's going to affect people all the same. Look at the speed of progress so far. The whole thing apparently started at a wholesale market in China with the first illness popping up in December of last year. January 1st, they shut down the market for likely being the starting point. It took about a week to identify the virus and for it to claim its first victim. February 14th, a Chinese tourist dies in France, and Egypt announces their first case, making them the first in Africa to be infected. Countries, especially in Southeast Asia, start canceling large events and restricting travel. Honestly, it was a little late for that. Around the world, organizations fight and document the virus as it continues to spread, but many still discuss it like it's only a Chinese issue. February 29th, a man dies from the coronavirus in Washington state, making him the first on U.S. soil. March 3rd, Iran announces it's temporarily releasing 54,000 prisoners to fight the worst spread of the virus outside of China. Italy becomes the virus hotspot of Europe, and by March 9th, the entire country is on lockdown. By March 11th, eight countries, including the U.S., have each reported over a thousand cases of the coronavirus. It is officially deemed a pandemic. The last pandemic we had was the H1N1, uh, the swine flu, from 2009, and it eventually killed about 18,000 people around the world, and that was hundreds dead in the U.S. Some reports are saying that Congress's attending physician expects a ballpark of 100 million people in the U.S. to eventually be infected with the virus. But again, not everyone has a severe case. Some people handle it just fine. And there are some, especially the older or unhealthy, that will die. And this is why they're shutting shit down. It's not just about the severity of the virus, it's about slowing the spread. Clinics and hospitals are having trouble testing for the virus. Many don't even have the kits they need. And even the ones that do can't test everyone. And even if they could, who's paying for all of that? Shit is getting fucked up. In Seattle, 
where the virus has been especially rough, a group of doctors wanted to test their already amassed flu swabs for the coronavirus, and the government told them no. But after a couple of weeks, they did it anyway. And they quickly found a patient that had not been outside of the country, meaning he wasn't suspected and had likely been wandering around spreading the virus without anybody knowing. Even then, the FDA and the CDC tried to stop them from testing these swabs. Throughout the back and forth, the lab found dozens of additional cases, and at least 22 people have died. The scientists believe that eventually they'll find the evidence that it was there earlier and that they could have dealt with it sooner had they been allowed to. The lesson here is that the government actively stood in the way and, shocker, made things worse. Now the Senate has postponed its recess for next week and they're arguing about additional financial aid packages, which include things like paid sick leave and money for more testing. And as much as these packages aim to help the average person, they're also designed to limit the unknown and stop the market freefall. That's their goal, is the money. Don't misconstrue this, that they're just so worried about you that they're going to all this trouble. Whatever happens, take whatever precautions you can, prepare as much as you can, and brace yourself because things are being disrupted. Even here, at the Common Sense Underground, things are getting a little difficult. Everyone is dealing with their own economic issues and travel hindrances. Now, maybe the bright side is that we'll get back on track and set up our own remote system for recording. Who knows? Either way, we're going to do our best to stay on schedule, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this again soon. But for right now, this is going to do it for this week. I'm going to make like Jake Gyllenhaal and get back to my bubble. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at the Common Sense Underground page over on Facebook. If you'd like to reach me personally, I am the B Parsons on Twitter. If you enjoy this podcast or get any kind of use out of it, send it to someone. Also, rate and subscribe if you can. Otherwise, we will see you all next week. This isn't freedom. Freedom. Damn you!